You're entering Outer Brightness. Hey, Fireflies, welcome back to Outer Brightness. I'm coming to you from the beautiful uh, city of Pikeville in eastern Kentucky, uh, deep in the mountains of coal country. Um, more interestingly, though, this is the home of uh, the Hatfield-McCoy feud. So uh, we are happy to have a guest here with us, Jackson Washburn, who's, who's a Latter-day Saint. So hopefully we won't uh, do any kind of reconstruction of the Hatfield-McCoy feud here tonight. Um, and Jackson, I understand you've got a you got a hurricane a blowing where you are. Yeah, yeah. I think they uh, they they just um, uh, oh what, what's the term um, like decreased it to a uh, a tropical storm. Uh, I, I don't know how significant that is. Uh, they both sound scary for someone from Arizona, but uh, it's not even raining right now. Um, things are looking good, and I think uh, um, going to be just fine. All right. Good deal. So Jackson's joining us uh, in Outer Brightness for the second time. He came on uh, last summer to talk about uh, an article of his that he had written. And uh, we did an episode with him where we read through his article and discussed it. And uh, that was fun. He uh, recently reached out to me and sent a link uh, to a podcast episode from the Why Religion podcast, which is the podcast for the BYU religion department. Um, they had had on Dr. Jason Combs to discuss an article that he wrote and uh, Jackson proposed that we we listen to it and I proposed that he come on and discuss it. So here we are. And uh, I'm going to give a quick uh, intro to who uh, Dr. Jason Combs is, uh, professor at BYU. Um, so here's his bio. Jason Robert Combs is an assistant professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. He joined B the BYU faculty in 2016 after working as a lecturer at High Point University, Guilford College, and UNC Greensboro in North Carolina. Combs earned his bachelor's degree in Near Eastern Studies from BYU. He holds a master's degree. He holds two uh, multiple master's degrees uh, in biblical studies from Yale Divinity School and in classics from Columbia University. He earned his PhD in religious studies with an emphasis on the history of early Christianity from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I understand that he studied under Bart Ehrman. Um, he wrote an article that is discussed in, again, in this podcast episode, it's, it's the why religion podcast episode number 37. Uh, so we're going to be discussing that with Jackson tonight, Jackson, welcome back to outer brightness. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. So Jackson, the last time you joined us on outer brightness, you were interning at the Joseph Smith papers project and you were preparing for your final year at Arizona state. A lot's happened in your life in the past year. Why don't you update our listeners on some of the recent happenings in Jackson land? Yeah. So I, um, I successfully completed my internship with the Joseph Smith papers. It was a uh, wonderful experience. Um, I felt like I grew a lot uh, in terms of uh, my own, uh, I don't know, professional skills and whatnot. Um, uh, did a lot of uh, documentary history work there, which is um, uh, appropriate given the venue. And uh, yeah, lot, lots of learning and, and growing during that time. Um, but I also 
uh, as you mentioned, uh, I've since had my final year at Arizona State. So I graduated um, this last May with degrees in uh, religious studies and history. And during that time, I also applied to grad schools, uh, different graduate programs where um, I got accepted and am now uh, looking forward to attend um, a week from now, actually, uh, my program at uh, Harvard Divinity School. So I'm going to be getting a master's of theological studies there with a focus in the history of Christianity. And I'm just uh, really happy about that. Uh, Harvard was my number one pick as far as my uh, schools uh, went. So it was uh, just uh, great news after kind of a, a sucky year and a half of, of both the pandemic. And, and also in uh, December, it's important for me to mention late December, uh, my father was actually diagnosed with a, an aggressive form of leukemia. Um, he's since been able to have uh, multiple rounds of chemotherapy and a stem cell transplant, which was successful. And he's uh, considered in full remission right now. Uh, things are looking very, very positive. And so uh, there's been a, a great turnaround there as well that I'm uh, very grateful for. Um, so yes, I've, I've been uh, pretty busy. A lot's been going on. Uh, uh, I've been throwing a couple curveballs, both in you know my life or, or my family's life, but uh, we've gotten through it and um, th things are looking pretty good. Um, so yeah, I just uh, recently moved to Boston. I've been able to kind of settle down for the last couple of weeks and uh, my program officially starts uh, on September 1st. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations on acceptance into Harvard. That's uh, yeah, thank you. No, uh, no small feat. So mm -hmm. uh, really happy for you there. And uh, again, uh, also really happy for, for your dad's remission. I know, uh, yeah. you know, we and others were praying for that. So yeah, like likewise, um, and uh, yeah, there. Um, yeah, my 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 dad was uh, very blessed to have a, a wide number of people from a number of different uh, religious backgrounds, uh, you know, praying for him, and uh, it definitely means a lot to me that uh, you and and others uh, with the outer brightness were uh, included in that mix. All right, thank you. We're glad you're back, uh, Matthew. The nuclear Calvinist is joining us in as well as usual. <laughs> Um, so for our listeners, uh, I've pulled out several clips from the Why Religion podcast episode. We'll uh, go ahead and play those so that you can listen to them and we will listen to them. And then we've got questions to put to Jackson and from, you know, from each one, we'll kind of uh, springboard off into a kind of a roundtable discussion of uh, the topic of the, the podcast episode, which, which is Christology. So um, here comes the first clip. The title of your chapter and the one that we're going to be unpacking today is Christ After the Apostles, the Humanity and Divinity of the Savior in the Second Century. So I want to actually start by telling you how much I enjoyed this chapter and want to begin by yeah. reading your opening you. paragraph. Yeah. Sounds good. So this is what it says. Late one evening in the middle of the second century AD, a small group of Christian priests trained in the philosophy of Plato met in secret in the back room of a church in Rome. Their goal? to complete the work of transforming the pure doctrine of Christ into a philosophically sound but morally deficient theology. They forged documents and altered scripture to suit their needs. In the end, over the course of that evening, they succeeded in forever altering the true doctrine of the nature of Christ into a fraud that would be propagated throughout the centuries, unquote. So that intro is captivating and I'm sure causes each of us who heard it to be filled with some righteous indignation. But in your mind, there's one really important fact about this story that you feel at least ought to be considered. What is that? Yeah. Uh, the most important fact about that story is that it's not true. 
yeah, I, I, I made the whole thing up. Yeah, but the reason the reason that I started with that story is because I think a lot of Latter Day Saints have that vision in their head. I think we we create this image of early Christians as all being wicked priests or something like that who are who are trying to like dismantle secretly Christianity. Sitting in the back yeah, room. these secret yeah. societies, right? <laughs> Uh, I think we sort of assume that uh, we have this time period where uh, Jesus and his apostles were active. Jesus dies, is, is resurrected, comes back, speaks to his apostles. They form a church. And then that's the end of the story. And there's darkness. And then years later, a few Christians come back on the scene and start writing. And by then things have totally changed. Uh, th- that's simply not the case. Once Christians start writing, they never stop. Uh, Christians um, are, are very prolific. And so um, the, the, new st- the New Testament texts span the whole first century. And by the beginning of the second century, we have other Christians writing, many, many of whom were disciples of the early apostles. And they write their experiences, and and they write advice to other Christians. This is a group that sometimes called the Apostolic Fathers because they were so close to the time of of the apostles, and sometimes were disciples of them. All right. So in that first clip, the host of of this particular episode of the Why Religion podcast is is Professor Ryan Sharp, and he reads out the introduction to Professor Jason Combs's article, "Christ After the Apostles: The Humanity and Divinity of the Savior." In the second century, um, Dr. Combs's article, which I've read, also presents uh, at first a false narrative of wicked priests corrupting the text of the New Testament. Uh, Jackson, what do you think of Dr. Combs's recasting of the LDS Church's narrative of a great apostasy? Well, um, I, I definitely really love how uh, that uh, segment uh, or, or that episode was was uh, begun um, by playing out, uh, a narrative that, uh, to many Latter-day Saints is going to, to sound, uh, probably very familiar to ones that maybe they've heard in Sunday school settings or, uh, in talking with, uh, uh, I don't know, companions on their mission or in other kinds of settings. Um, and I, I really appreciate the fact that he very quickly, uh, points out that, uh, this is, uh, more of a, um, uh, I don't know, an invented narrative than one that has a strong basis in history. Um, so uh, personally, of course, I, I think it's incredibly important to, uh, w- when it comes to various historical claims that we make, to have those be, um, you know, uh, solidly backed up uh, by the historical record, or at least uh, 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 presented in such a way that they can be defended uh, using the historical record. Um, so in the case of uh, uh, Dr. Combs's work, um, I really appreciate how he's seeking to point out uh, to members of his own faith tradition ways in which uh, perhaps they've misrepresented or misunderstood uh, uh, early Christian history and how they might go about uh, approaching that in ways that are more uh, accurate, historically defensible, um, and uh, I, I guess primarily uh, historically grounded, right? Um, so I, I, I'm certainly all for it. So do you see this similar shift in the either within the LDS leadership or, you know, in, in teaching materials or in the general membership, or do you, do you see this as mostly a change of starting in academia and maybe it'll filter down? Yeah. So um, I, I can definitely say that uh, on the popular level, um, I, I don't see uh, significant shifts in this area. Um, well, um, at, at least historically speaking, let me back up a little bit. Um, uh, 
there have been an, uh, multiple different, um, uh, shall we say, apostasy narratives uh, within Latter-day Saint history. And they've, uh, uh, you know, perhaps been inflected in different ways or, or uh, emphasized uh, different points of uh, early Christian history. Um, you know, some might uh, emphasize uh, uh, early Christianity's um, kind of philosophical uh, 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 intersection with uh, uh, Greco-Roman philosophy or, or the various uh, philosophies of the time and the ways in which that uh, potentially shaped or molded or, I don't know, caused Christianity, uh, the, the, the Christian message to be presented in different ways. Um, there's others that uh, definitely coming out of more of a, a vein of, of anti-Catholicism uh, that was likely um, uh, part of, uh, I don't know, predominant uh, Protestant narratives. Uh, so, for instance, early 20th century, late 19th century, um, you know, uh, sentiments that really emphasize the, the Catholic Church's uh, role in uh, this apostasy, right? Um, uh, th- those have existed. Um Others with, which emphasize uh, perhaps just this kind of immediate uh, uh, scattering of righteous disciples um, uh, who aren't able to pass on uh, their legitimate authority. Um, so this emphasis on the the uh, what, what's argued as the disunity of early Christianity, uh, emphasizing different uh, groups, uh, some considered uh, now orthodox, uh, others considered uh, heterodox or, or uh, heretical, um, you know, such as various like Gnostic or, or other um, groups like that. So, uh, yeah, these, these narratives, you know, they, they've taken different emphases um, and some have perhaps been a bit more historical, historically defensible than others. Um, but, uh, you know, as is the case with uh, many topics in LDS history, um, it's often uh, slow going that uh, the LDS leadership itself, um, you know, really comes from a background of, of uh, really comprehensive or, or solid uh, understanding of those kinds of uh, things. I think um, it's safe to say in the last like two decades or so, um, especially the last decade, the LDS church leaders have really um, begun to uh, try and become more accurate with the claim, the historical claims they make uh, uh, with respect to early LDS history. Um, you know, they have resources such as the Joseph Smith papers and others at the church history department now that uh, um, it's, it's not uncommon for me in reading maybe different conference talks or, or other remarks that are given that uh, tell some type of historical, um, you know, narrative that uh, their, their sources are from those places, right? And so it's a lot, it's a lot better grounded uh, in history. But um, yeah, um, it's not super common that I hear uh, LDS church leaders talk about early Christianity in much detail. And when they do, it tends to be very generalized, uh, very, um, I don't, yeah, uh, just broad in scope. Um, and, and perhaps like uh, touching on some of the points that I mentioned earlier in a very generalized uh, kind of way. So um, I, I, I do appreciate that you mentioned uh, also kind of the the segment of LDS academia because I have I have uh, seen uh, LDS academics whether at BYU or or other places uh, really try to become more uh, uh, conscientious and um, uh, careful with uh, the kinds of claims that they make in this area and their publications are reflected uh, reflecting that. And so in cases like this, where you have BYU's religion department, you know, this is their, you know, uh, podcast, essentially, um, it's, uh, it, it's through those scholars that uh, a lot of these, um, uh, perhaps uh, more accurate uh, historical 
takes are going to be disseminated to LDS membership more broadly. But, you know, even then, uh, the LDS church is big in terms of its membership um, with respect to, you know, having uh, millions of members. And I guarantee you that uh, the uh, the Y Religion podcast, uh, you know, isn't necessarily getting millions of downloads per episode. Um, so even then, if you have good resources, they're coming from good places that are publicly available. Um, it's often the case that uh, um, the the number of uh, Latter-day Saints themselves who receive those things uh, are going to be partial at best. All right. Matthew, anything further before we go on? All right. So, Jackson, as I was uh, making my transition out of the LDS church in like 2010, 2011 timeframe, um, one of the first Latter-day Saint scholars that I remember interacting with on Facebook was Jared Anderson. Mm. And um, he also studied uh, like, like Jason Combs did under uh, Bart Ehrman. And I remember commenting at one point to Jason or to Jared um, in a Facebook post that uh, I, having come out of the LDS church and kind of jettisoned the idea of, of a great apostasy in the way that the LDS church presents it, um, that I felt like I had uh, come to that, that all of Christian history was mine, I think is the way I worded it. And what I meant by that is that I, I had found spiritual ancestors um, among the early church fathers. Um, one of them in particular, I was reading at the time was, was Augustine's confessions. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the main reason why I felt that way. Um, but I was, you know, I was kind of going off from, from Augustine into, you know, reading Philip Schaff's uh, history of the church and, yeah. and in encountering a lot of the other early church fathers as well. So um, what I'm going to do now is uh, play a clip for you from the book of Mormon from first Nephi chapter 13 verses 20 to 29, and then ask you to comment. And it came to pass that I Nephi beheld that they did prosper in the land and I beheld a book and it was carried forth among them. And the angel said unto me, knowest thou the meaning of the book? And I said unto him, I know not. And he said, Behold, it proceedeth out of the mouth of a Jew. And I, Nephi, beheld it. And he said unto me, The book that thou beholdest is a record of the Jews, which contains the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made unto the house of Israel. And it also containeth many of the prophecies of the holy prophets. And it is a record like unto the engravings, which are upon the plates of brass, save there are not so many. Nevertheless, they contain the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made unto the house of Israel. Wherefore, they are of great worth unto the Gentiles. And the angel of the Lord said unto me, Thou hast beheld that the book proceeded forth from the mouth of a Jew, and when it proceeded forth from the mouth of a Jew, it contained the fullness of the gospel of the Lord, of whom the twelve apostles bear record and they bear record according to the truth which is in the Lamb of God. Wherefore, these things go forth from the Jews in purity unto the Gentiles, according to the truth which is in God. And after they go forth by the hand of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, from the Jews unto the Gentiles, thou seest the formation of that great and abominable church, which is most abominable above all other churches. For behold, They have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. And all this have they done that they might pervert the right ways of the Lord, that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore, 
Thou seest that after the book hath gone forth through the hands of the great and abominable church, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book, which is the book of the Lamb of God. And after these plain and precious things were taken away, it goeth forth unto all the nations of the Gentiles. And after it goeth forth unto all the nations of the Gentiles, yea, even across the many waters, which thou hast seen, with the Gentiles which have gone forth out of captivity, thou seest, because of the many plain and precious things which have been taken out of the book, which were plain unto the understanding of the children of men, according to the plainness which is in the Lamb of God, because of these things which are taken away out of the gospel of the Lamb, an exceedingly great many do stumble, yea, insomuch that Satan hath great power over them. Jackson, one of the things that you know, having listened to the Why Religion podcast episode with Dr. Combs and, and having read his articles, article, one of the things that I appreciate about, appreciate about what he's doing is um, he's attempting to situate the uh, apostolic fathers, especially in a positive light mm-hmm. um, for Latter-day Saints. And I appreciate that about what he's doing, but um, I'm curious what you think about, you know, this this passage from the Book of Mormon. Do you think do you think that it contributes to what Dr. Combs kind of says as a misunderstanding by Latter-day Saints of, of the early Christological debates and maybe of the Apostolic Fathers as well? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sure that's been the case. Um, so with respect to this uh, passage in particular, um, you know, this is coming from 1 Nephi 13, where Nephi is uh, experiencing a, a vision of not just the, the tree of life, but uh, other kinds of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, visionary phenomena, let's say. Um, uh, that are uh, kind of mediated and, and interpreted by an angelic guide. And uh, this has been referred to in uh, uh, different uh, LDS spaces as, as Nephi's apocalypse sometimes, uh, meaning, you know, uh, similar to, let's say, John the Revelator uh, or, or others. Um, that this is a this is an apocalyptic vision, which is grandiose in scope. It uh, not just uh, it, it doesn't just deal with um, things in, in Nephi's own time, but he's also shown a, a vision essentially of of uh, you know the last days or of the future. And uh, in in light of that, um, I think it's definitely uh, uh, likely that uh, Latter Day Saints, historically speaking, have uh, read this passage and and understood it in much the same way that. Uh, um, uh, perhaps uh, Dr. Combs, um, you know, described uh, early on in his uh, his article, um, and I think that's what w- what's interesting about that is, um, at least for me, um, there's there's ways that uh, at least I read that where um, uh, being visionary in nature, um, you know, it, it I, I think there's a level of uh, of interpretation that it's open to in terms of just like how uh, specific you might want to read into some of the passages. Um, but I, I do think it uh, lends itself very easily to uh, the kind of um, uh, narrative uh, about Christology uh, that we'll be able to talk more about. Um, but also more directly, I, I think it speaks to uh, matters of the preservation, preservation and transmission of scripture, right, which is a, a often a very uh, key part of LDS narratives about apostasy, um, uh, especially as far as the Bible is concerned, right? So um, yeah, I, I think I think those are all uh, related. Um, and if it's okay, um, you know, I'll just kind of briefly summarize like what what that kind of looks like with the Bible uh, as we got to, as we described uh, it, with that passage. 
Um, many Latter-day Saints often understand uh, biblical tran transmission and translation to be this process of, um, I don't know, the, the starting point is usually, I would say, um, the uh, the article of faith, what is it, number number eight, I think. Um, yeah, the, the we believe the Bible to be the word of God as long as it's translated correctly. And um, uh, many Latter-day Saints, uh, especially when they might be serving missions, you know, they're coming from uh, not necessarily uh, formal backgrounds of, uh, of um, you know, pastoral training or, or theological study. Um, there's these narratives about the Bible uh, that we have being a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation, you know, like a game of telephone where uh, often the, what the, the end product that we have currently um, is often unreliable or um, uh, in cases where it perhaps conflicts with uh, LDS theology or, or different uh, works of Mormon scripture or things like that. Um, it's, it's held to be, um, you know, uh, inferior, uh, to them that, you know, perhaps something was corrupted perhaps something was lost in translation. Uh, and so that's, uh, often an uncritical, um, approach to the, to the Bible, uh, that many Latter-day Saints take, uh, that I don't find particularly informed by, um, you know, the, uh, academic, uh, biblical studies or, or it's, uh, actual transmission history. Um, I, I think there's arguments to be made, uh, of course, about various passages in the Bible and, you know, whether or not uh, they represent uh, 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 kind of original passages um, uh, or, you know, in some cases we can see some uh, perhaps intentional changes in, in um, the, the text over time. Uh, but by and large, um, I consider the Bible to be uh, pretty uh, accurately preserved. Um, especially as far as the New Testament is concerned. Um, I, I think the New Testament is uh, um, a remarkably well-preserved uh, 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 collection of texts uh, from the ancient world. Um, so I, I, I think it's, uh, this just goes for me to say that um, uh, for Latter-day Saints who uh, perhaps might be inclined to play the, um, you know, oh, it, it just must be corrupted, um, you know, to try and maybe get out of uh, uh, some some theological uh, tension or contradiction they might feel. Um, I, I, I believe that that's often um, uh, too easy of a cop-out and, and one that's uh, unjustified. Um, All right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Jackson, for that, mm -hmm. that answer. Um, Well-reasoned, I think. Um, just trying to, so for our listeners, we, we published uh, today and a series of episodes that we did with uh, Steve James, who's another Latter-day Saint that we uh, discuss things with on Facebook occasionally. And uh, the topic of that episode uh, was biblical inerrancy. And we got into some of the topics that Jackson was just talk about, talking about with regards to uh, transmission and translation of the biblical text. So if you're interested in kind of digging more deeply into those topics, go ahead and listen to those episodes. Um, but now let's, um, let's get to the topic of uh, Dr. Combs' article, which is Christology. So I'm going to play the next clip from the podcast. There are lots of writings that that are patterned after the kinds of writings we have in in the New Testament today, uh, and then we have other writings. We have sermons. We have um, letters written from one Christian to another. We have writing some of the writings that are addressed in this particular. Um, chapter that I wrote, uh, Christ After the Apostles, some of the writings that I address most frequently here could be called heresiological writings. They are, they are writings that are trying to catalog groups of Christians that they believe are heretics, that they believe are preaching false doctrine. And this, this style of writing becomes quite popular as well. 
this the whole, the entire book that this article is published in is is on Christology. Uh, Christology comes from two Greek words: uh, the word that we get Christ from, Christos, and the word logos, uh, which can be translated as word or as thought or as study or lots of things. So, just as theology is is study or talk about God, Christology is study or talk about Christ. And Christology tends to focus on understanding the nature of Christ. Uh, how is Christ similar to and different from us as as human beings? Okay, so uh, so in this clip, uh, Dr. Combs he defines Christology. So, uh, Jax, do you agree that uh, Christology is a theological point of disagreement between LDS and Christians of other traditions, so uh, Protestants, Catholics, and Eastern, Eastern Orthodox? Uh, and do you share uh, Dr. Combs's view that the Christological debates that began in the second century are important for LDS today to understand? Uh, yeah, well, uh, certainly uh, Christology is uh, definitely going to vary uh, between not just the uh, uh, large branches of Christianity that you mentioned, uh, but also with uh, uh, Latter-day Saints or, or the Mormon Restorationist movement. Uh, so much so um, that I think it's it's important to note, of course, uh, that, you know, uh, of the three that you listed, uh, Protestants, Catholics, uh, and Orthodox Christians, um, uh, at least uh, historically and, and often theologically speaking, there's still a level of, of common ground uh, that, that can be recognized uh, between those three groups where, um, yes, you know, you'll see plenty of, of infighting or, or theological debates, um, but the, the level of uh, perceived uh, contrast or dissonance uh, between those three groups and their respective Christological views uh, is often considered uh, far less in scope or significance, at least internally among them, uh, than uh, in comparison to them uh, versus uh, uh, Mormonism. Um, and I think that's significant. Um, uh, of course, uh, Latter-day Saints or, or even evangelicals listening um, uh, will likely be familiar with um, the, the claim that Latter-day Saints worship a different Jesus. Um, and uh, I, I've encountered that many of times uh, in uh, interreligious conversations with uh, Christians of different uh, stripes. Um, but uh, yeah, um, I, I, you know, it's the, the differences in Christology are, are at least to me, um, pretty significant. Um, those key differences include uh, who is Jesus? Uh, how does Jesus relate to God? Uh, how does Jesus relate to humanity, both ontologically uh, or as a um, on the basis of his his being or his nature, uh, and salvifically, like how does uh, Jesus save us? Um, those points are often um, uh, there's often some some key differences, um, and at times some common ground as well, but uh, um, uh, some some differences that are focused on by by Christians in performing outreach to Latter Day Saints, um, and, and these go beyond just uh, like atonement theories, for instance, right? Uh, within Christianity broadly, you'll have various uh, historical uh, atonement theories, uh, such as um, uh, ransom theory, Christus Victor. Uh, penal substitutionary atonement, uh, and, and some others that are perhaps uh, more, more recent. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the differences between what we might call the Mormon Jesus and uh, uh, the uh, traditional Christian Jesus are going to be significant. Um, to this, your second question, um, I do share uh, the same view as Dr. Combs that uh, uh, understanding those Christological debates uh, in the second century and, and later um, uh, that were held within uh, and, and among and between early Christians, um, I, I think it's important for Latter-day Saints to have a, an awareness of them, 
uh, to be uh, somewhat informed about them. You know, of course, I can't ask that everyone's a, a religion nerd uh, like me or, or like uh, the rest of us. Um, but uh, I, I would at least like uh, some some more basic uh, historical awareness, um, uh, if if not also an accurate understanding of, of the, the basic reasons for why those councils might have been held. Um, I often see misunderstandings among Latter-day Saints about those councils, uh, specifically Nicaea uh, is kind of the most prominent one, um, you know, misunderstandings of, of who organized them, of what their purpose was, of what their conclusions were. Um, uh, they're often, uh, in my opinion, especially Nicaea, uh, caricatured uh, in such a way that uh, uh, you know, feeds into some of the earlier apostasy narratives that I that I mentioned and and uh, would take issue with. Um, so um, beyond just this uh, podcast, I've encountered other podcasts and in, uh, in different Latter Day Saint venues that uh, cover the Council of Nicaea, that cover some of these re- relevant topics with other scholars uh, who are Latter Day Saints themselves, saying like, "Hey, we need to clarify." Our messaging here, um, you know, and these are some common misconceptions you might have about Nicaea or or the creeds or some of these other councils. So um, I, I just think it's important um, that Latter-day Saints generally have an awareness and like, you know, an accurate understanding of them um, because uh, they help uh, inform us about the communities and traditions that were among those closest to Jesus and the apostles. Um, they help us understand that the mindset, the motivation, and the the intentions of early Christians, and they can also clarify potential claims that we make uh, within latter uh, the the apostasy narratives of Latter Day Saints themselves. Um, you know, so as to help us better understand and not uh, unintentionally re- misrepresent uh, other Christians or Christians of of the past. Yeah, great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I I, uh, I think in general, just I th- I think Christians also really kind of, you know, non-Latter-day Saint Christians struggle to understand their own history. And yeah. um, a lot of times, so I just finished, uh, well, listening on audiobook, a book by Matthew Barrett, Simply Trinity. Mm. And uh, it's a really great book. And he really, he admits that when he was a, a seminarian, that most Christian seminaries are kind of, the way we describe the Trinity, the way we describe, uh, you know, how Christians came to understand the Trinity is kind of like a very modern view. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see it more as like looking at the Bible, like a set of math equations, like, okay, all you got to do is show, okay, where it says there's only one God and there's no other God. And then you show also where the father is God, the son is God, the spirit is God. And then, mm-hmm. you know, equal sign Trinity kind of a thing. Yeah. And he, and he doesn't say that that's necessarily a wrong way to do it, but it's not a historical way to look at, you know, mm-hmm. the Trinity. Yeah. And, um, he goes into detail about, uh, some aspects of the Trinity, of Nicene, uh, you know, Trinitarianism that we just kind of don't really focus on. There's certain aspects of, of the Trinity that we don't really talk a lot about. Like, what does it mean for the son to be begotten? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times in um, modern Christianity, we think of that as like a metaphorical begottenness or, you know, like the father son relationship is one of love and respect and, you know, mm-hmm. a relationship, but we, for, but uh, he really says that, you know, the Nicene fathers to them, that it was a true be- begotten relationship you know the father is unbegotten but he begets the son um just as like a human father begets their son but the divine nature is different from the human nature and so the divine begetting begetting this i don't know other what other word to use but the divine begetting of the son is different than a a human father begets a son in several ways Mm -hmm. so i think even christians we really struggle with connecting you know tapping into that history and understanding you know um it's not that the trinity like was invented at nicaea in the sense of like 
all these brand new ideas were just thrown at, yeah, you know, slapped yeah. against the board. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, that's what I struggle with as a, as a Latter-day Saint, you know, like I was kind of under the belief that the Trinity was like, didn't even exist until then. Mm-hmm. The ideas were there, but um, as R.C. Sproul teaches, he's one of my favorite modern theologians. He says, you know, a lot of times heresy or, you know, quote unquote heresy, you know, controversies within the, within the church, if you want to put it that way, force the church to look at it deeper and say, how can we clarify this? How can we make this, mm-hmm. you know, how can we make this reconcile these different terms? You know, the, the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ. So, yeah, that's, those were just thoughts I had on this section. Uh, do you have any yeah. uh, comments on that? Yeah, well, um, you know, I'll just add as well um, that, uh, yeah, it, it is it is quite interesting with respect to Christian history how these particular historical contexts or perhaps challenges that the early Christian church faced, uh, these controversies that arose, um, you know, being removed from these contexts ourselves by several thousand years, potentially, um, you know, it, it, it causes you to um, take for granted um, kind of where Christianity might be at today with respect to its, its theological and intellectual and, and uh, you know, um, uh, historical developments and, and enrichment, right? Um, and it's once you step into these kinds of contexts again, you can see how some of these issues that arise uh, we're threatening to, you know, uh, uh, cause massive, uh, uh, you know, internal disruptions to the Christian community, um, you know, the, the depth of some of these controversies. And, and uh, historically speaking, um, you know, some of them did indeed uh, lead to schisms or, or, you know, historical splits between uh, various branches or denominations. Um, and, and so they are quite significant. I also want to point out, too, that um, so I guess, I guess two more thoughts I'll share. Um, one, uh, it's, it's interesting to see how some of these heresies, uh, quote unquote heresies, as they would be perceived by Orthodox Christians, um, uh, kind of repeat themselves over time, right? Uh, that, uh, you know, the, the Arian debates um, around the fourth century, that wasn't the only time uh, that the, the Christian church, broadly speaking, had to deal with Arianism, uh, you know, around, I would say, the 14th century or so. Um, there's a resurgence of Aryan thought or, or in contemporary times um, during the second great awakening, you know, um, uh, you know, out of, out of the 19th century, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, very much espouse a, a theology that might be considered Aryan. Um, so it's interesting to see how some of these things uh, continue to spring up in, in other contexts and, and uh, you know, Mormonism will be included in, in there in uh, certain ways as well. Um, and, and then finally, I also wanted to add um, oh, geez, uh, might have escaped me. Um, oh, uh, when it comes to the themes of some of these, uh, these controversies and their respective disputes, um, it, it's interesting to me to see how thematically they might be centered, right? Where, um, you know, some have to deal with Christology, others ecclesiology, or, uh, you know, uh, the theology of the spirit, uh, what, what is that, pneumatology, um, or, or something like that. Um, and, uh, um, I think right now, one of the most pressing questions for the Christian church at large is one of anthropology, uh, one of, you know, that, that deals with the intersections of, of gender and sexuality and, uh, the kind of, um, the, the social roles of Christians as believers. Um, you know, that, that's where, uh, we're seeing, uh, many Christian churches, uh, experience tension, um, uh, you know, around today, I mean, the, the Methodist church right now, right. You know, is, is, uh, very close to, uh, uh, formally dividing along the issue of, uh, human sexuality, 
Um, so it's interesting to see. Um, I, I, I guess my point with that is, uh, like you said, Matthew, that, uh, um, you know, sometimes it takes uh, a particular, you know, fire or a particular, you know, uh, th- these things to heat up in some way uh, for the Christian community itself to really try and uh, zero in on what these issues are and hammer them out uh, and refine them uh, in, you know, a, a more a more specific way. Yeah, uh, thank you for that, Jackson. I also liked your point that you made about um, how, since we're so removed from these contexts, uh, these controversies, that we just don't quite understand. We don't understand it, or a lot of times we just don't care. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's why we don't study history, because it's like, well, why does it matter to me? I've got it all figured out. Kind of yeah. So, yeah, thank you for your comments. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go on to the next clip. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. And one of my favorite parts from your chapter, and I'm going to read it with a warning that it's, it's a little bit longer of an excerpt, uh, but I, I think it's well worth it. So this is what you write, and then I'd love for you to maybe um, take it whichever direction you want after this. So this debate was not uh, purely intellectual pursuit, this um, debate about Christology. While early Christians certainly brought all of their intellectual resources to bear on these questions, their concern was far from academic. In fact, for them, the salvation of humanity was at stake. Were Jesus Christ not sufficiently human, how could he have the ability to rescue humanity? Were Jesus Christ not sufficiently divine, how could he have the power to rescue humanity? The debates about the nature of Jesus Christ were debates about the relationship between humans and God, as well as about how humans might be saved and what they might be saved from. The Christological debates of the second century represent, in Latter-day Saint terminology, the work of the early saints to understand the central role of Jesus Christ within the plan of salvation. In, in quote. And I love this because it underscores that the stakes are high, we, we might even say eternally high, in the minds of these early Christians, just as they're eternally high for, for us. All right. So, Jackson, uh, would you agree with Dr. Combs when he's talking about the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, that the stakes are as high as he suggests? Um, well, I mean, it, uh, like he said, it, it certainly uh, might be contextualized with uh, the, the Christian community that you're dealing with, right? Um, I think it's safe to say, historically speaking, that these uh, questions were of, uh, of, you know, very crucial and high importance to the respective uh, Christian communities that uh, debated them and uh, tried to reach uh, some level of, uh, of orthodoxy on. Um, when it comes to uh, Latter-day Saints, though, um, I'm not at all uh, trying to suggest that uh, Christology uh, or, or some of these uh, questions aren't important to Latter-day Saints, but the ways that Latter-day Saints approach them, uh, in my opinion, uh, are often uh, different than um, what, uh, how early Christians might have uh, approached them themselves. Um, so, you know, what, one thing um, that I think is important to, to say is that, uh, um, at least with respect to early Christians, uh, who are trying to hammer out and uh, reach some type of consensus or or common uh, understanding or a position of orthodoxy on these issues? Um, that that's very much their intended goal, you know, to uh, take a given dispute or controversy and uh, come to uh, a a a conclusion about you know which position is orthodox, which position is best supported by by scripture, uh, by the apostolic tradition, etc. Um, and which ones uh, should be considered heretical or outside the, the scope of the Christian community. Um, and uh, in comparison to that, uh, there are various areas of, of um, high importance to the LDS church or uh, 
its leaders or its membership uh, that are often uh, also approached as uh, perhaps um, I don't know. Let's say like deal breakers, uh, for instance. Um, the, you know these these lines of orthodoxy that determine uh, one's uh, position with within a given community. Uh, but you know, then there's also other uh, things that uh, within LDS circles that uh, to many Christians would be considered uh, uh, questions of of high importance, but to Latter Day Saints might not be given the same kind of weight, or there might be uh, more. Um, I don't know, uh, uh, theological uh, flexibility there uh, internally within the community. Um, and those those things can change over time too. Um, you know, so uh, uh, for instance, I would say uh, that uh, let's say during the administration of Brigham Young, uh, one's kind of attitude and acceptance of, of the practice of plural marriage uh, was considered a, a much more important, um, uh, you know, uh, personal belief um, uh, then, uh, it might be considered today, uh, not just because Latter-day Saints today don't practice plural marriage in the same way, uh, but because, uh, you know, very much in Brigham Young's time where there's other competing restorationist traditions that, uh, formally reject, uh, Joseph Smith practicing polygamy or that polygamy is of, uh, divine origin or, you know, any kind of commandment or, you know, it's very much tied to Brigham Young's own, uh, claims to leadership, Right. And so if one does, uh, you know, very vocally reject plural marriage uh, within the context of Brigham Young's administration, that often was perceived as setting them outside the bounds of that uh, respective uh, uh, LDS uh, community. Um, now, of course, there were still people that were uncomfortable with the practice, um, but, you know, vocally preaching against it uh, would uh, position oneself probably closer to Sid Sidney Rigdon or, or, you know, perhaps some other um, uh, competing, uh, you know, uh, successors, uh, you know, in, in the mid to late uh, 19th century. Um, and then today, uh, I, I'm, I can personally say that uh, uh, opinions regarding plural marriage and whether or not it was ordained of God or, or things like that, I encounter a lot more diversity of belief. Um, the context has changed a bit. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, you know, that, that one's more practice oriented. Uh, one that I think um, uh, we'll be able to dive into a bit more. Um, but, uh, you know, along the lines of Christology, I've encountered various uh, forms of LDS Christology that, uh, um, I don't know, I, I, I would say uh, there, there's flexibility there in ways that there might not be flexibility for someone who's a Protestant or someone who is a Catholic or, or Orthodox. Um, uh, Latter-day Saints haven't quite, uh, I don't know, uh, delineated what those boundaries and what those uh, official, you know, kind of lines of Orthodoxy are um, in certain spaces. So, uh, you know, it certainly depends. Yeah, thank you. And, and I like the point that you made uh, early on where you said that it seems like, you know, historic, you know, creedal Christianity has kind of placed a lot of importance on certain topics and less so on other ones, maybe. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, in LDS, uh, you know, belief and culture, uh, they, there's a lot of emphasis on other things. And mm -hmm. it's, I, I think one point is just Christology in general. We look at it differently because historic Christianity didn't just want you to affirm that Jesus was God and man. That's not really good enough because um, he talks about the various, you know, early, early quote unquote heresies that were declared by the church, like Apollinarianism, mm -hmm. you know, where Jesus didn't really have a human mind. He just had a divine mind in a human mm -hmm. body, basically. and so. Uh, that's one as well as Nestorianism where Jesus, because he has both a human nature and a divine nature, he must also have a human will and a divine will and a human person and a divine person. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not just one person, it's two persons. Yeah. And that was declared a heresy. And so it's, it wasn't, it wasn't simply enough to just say that Jesus is God and man, you know, historically it's, it says, okay, what, what are the implications of that? What does that actually mean in terms of nature, will, and uh, person? And um, even, even for, there was the monotheism versus diotheism, the idea that did Jesus have two wills, you know, a human will and a divine will, or did he have a single will? And um Ultimately, you know, the majority chose diotheolatism, the idea that will is tied to nature. Mm-hmm. So Christ had both a divine and a, and a human nature. And to me, I find that fascinating. And I think, and I think most of it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, if you just study, you know, the, the reasoning why they, they came to these conclusions, it kind of makes sense. Well, how could Jesus be two persons? Because, you know, it's not like there's four p- persons in the Trinity, you know, God, the father, God, the son, you know, God, the incarnate, you know, God, the spirit, you know, there's only three persons. So it, a lot of it makes sense, but in LDS theology or LDS, it, they don't, it doesn't seem like that's much emphasized, like all of these logical de- deductions yeah. of what it means for him to be God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to kind of uh, uh, strengthen that point even more, right. Uh, for Latter-day Saints to uh, be declared uh, worthy to enter the temple, uh, right. There's the temple recommend interview process and the, the theological questions that are asked there. Um, you know, there's, there's questions that I would say pertain to orthodoxy or right belief. Um, and there's far more questions that pertain to orthopraxy or right practice, right. There's maybe three or four questions that have to deal with one's beliefs versus, you know, how one is living. Um, and the one that has to deal with Jesus is simply, you know, do you believe, uh, essentially like, you know, do you affirm Jesus as your savior and, you know, uh, accept his atonement, um, uh, and it's a yes, no question, right? Uh, there is no, um, you know, fine print of, uh, okay, so how many wills does he have or, uh, how many, how many persons or, you know, uh, some of these details that, uh, were really emphasized at various times in Christian history. Um, the, these yes, no questions, uh, can potentially be pretty open-ended in my opinion. And, uh, I've encountered various Latter-day Saints who, um, appreciate that flexibility given that they're, uh, perhaps respective uh, views on God or on Jesus might differ from uh, other views in their own congregation uh, from, you know, other, other members of the ward. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of interesting to see how these things play out within LDS circles. Yeah. So um, just to kind of piggyback off of that uh, you know, one of the things that in the podcast episode with Dr. Combs that the the host kind of brings out. Um, and I think it's in, you know, towards the end where they're, they're kind of plugging uh, a book, uh, I think from, or an upcoming book from the Maxwell Institute where they, they kind of quote the, the title of the book is kind of a quote from DNC 93, you know, know what you mm-hmm. worship. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think the stakes are high as, as Dr. Combs and, and, and the host kind of point out. Um, and I, you know, I was reminded that I was recently talking with, um, you know, a, a gentleman that I talk frequently with on Facebook, uh, who's also a Latter-day Saint. We were talking about the peccability and impeccability uh, of Christ. And for the for those of our listeners who don't know what those theological terms mean, we were discussing whether or not it was possible for Christ to sin uh, in in as when he was uh, here on earth. Yeah. Um, and that that question, you know, whether or not it was possible kind of goes directly to Christ's nature as fully divine, right? Because if, if, if Christ is fully divine, uh, fully God, then, then he would not be able to sin, right? Because God is incapable of sin. But in response, this, this, this friend of mine that, that I discuss often with, he, he said, uh, anyway, I, I guess I'm not highly concerned about it 
seems like another philosophical debate with almost no practical consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I would argue that 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 question does have practical consequence yeah. um, for for what we worship, right? And so I think uh, even though there are disagreements um, and and places of divergent within divergence within LDS theology and, and Orthodox Christian theology, uh, I think we can agree that the stakes are high. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, uh, though, of course, it is important to point out that perhaps uh, uh, Christians and Latter Day Saints will will feel uh, that um, the 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 severity of those stakes uh, differently. They'll perceive them differently. Um, uh, I, I, I do think that uh, the LDS practice of uh, vicarious ordinances and the belief in um, uh, the gospel being preached uh, in the afterlife and the potential for uh, salvation, um, uh, you know, coming to saving faith, uh, beyond, uh, just mortality. Um, uh, I, I think that changes the dynamic of how, uh, you know, that, that sense of urgency might be perceived by Latter-day Saints at times. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're probably right about that. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, I'm also reminded of, of, of John chapter eight, um, where Jesus says, uh, where it says, so he said unto them, he, Jesus quote, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin where I am going. You cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So, you know, we can take from, from scripture that, that, you know, from Jesus, that the stakes are high, right? Um, understanding who he who he was, uh, what his work was, and what he accomplished uh, in the incarnation uh, is is vitally important, eternally important, as as the host of the Why Religion podcast said. Yeah, yeah, and I'm reminded of a statement that uh, Joseph Smith made uh, in the King Follett discourse as well. That uh, um, you know, this is a rough paraphrase. I, I don't have it in front of me, but you know, just also emphasizing the importance of of uh, um, people uh, comprehending uh, the the being and nature of of God correctly. Right. Yeah. Which is you know, statements like that are, are why I why I emphasize that I think that yeah. this is an area where we can agree that that the yeah. stakes are high. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. The Faith After Mormonism Conference is an annual conference that provides encouragement and insight for people leaving Mormonism to explore a new faith home in historic biblical Christianity. Through speakers, workshops, exhibitors, and individual interactions, you will receive helpful resources and meet others on a similar journey. This year, 
the featured guests are going to be the folks from Adams Road Ministry. Adams Road is a Christian nonprofit ministry dedicated to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ through song and testimony. Its members are former Mormons who have been brought into a saving relationship with Jesus through the grace of God. This year, there will be two events. The North event will be held at Alpine Church in Layton, Utah on September 10th and 11th, and the South event will be held September 24th and 25th at Center Point Church in Orem, Utah. For those of you who are in Utah, I encourage you to make a trip either to Layton or Orem to these events. I think you'll be greatly blessed by them, and I just wanted to share that information with you. All right, let's go on to the next clip. Yeah, so that's right. What's at stake is, is the atonement of Jesus Christ, how Jesus Christ saves us. So early Christians, as we do today, acknowledge that there is a great gulf between us and God, and they would explain that in in different ways. Uh, We, of course, would think immediately of our, our sinfulness, our sins separate us from God. But even before we were sinful, we were not exactly like God. God is more glorious, exalted, and powerful than than we are. And so, how do we bridge that gap? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ. And so, early Christians struggled to understand how exactly Jesus Christ accomplished this for us. And one of the answers seems to be in his very nature, in his nature of even though he was even though he is God, even though he is part of the Godhead, he condescended and took on humanity. He took on human flesh. And with human flesh, all that comes with that, human weakness, uh, a veil of forgetfulness, we would say as Latter-day Saints, um, and and all the struggles and pains of, of humanity, uh, with one exception, that he was without sin. That, of course, doesn't mean that he wasn't tempted— in fact, in the Gospels, it makes it quite clear that he was tempted, but he resisted those temptations. So he experienced fully what it was to be human. At the same time, he, he retained his divinity. Jesus Christ was and is God. And so Christians throughout time, and, and we even today, uh, sometimes struggle with how to describe that? Where, where does the emphasis fall? Sometimes we tend to emphasize more his divinity, but, but, but if we don't emphasize enough his humanity, then, then we can forget that he really knows us. He really knows what it means to be human. Of course, if we emphasize his humanity too much, we forget that he, in fact, is our God and Savior and has the power to overcome all weakness and, and trial and sin. And death. All right, so let's explore this idea of a gulf between God and humanity. Um, Dr. Combs takes the typical Mormon view that the gulf is 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 one of sinfulness and mortality, uh, not one of nature or ontology. Do you agree, Jackson? Um, has God the Father eternally been God, or did He progress to be God? Has God the Son always been God, or did He progress to be God? Yeah, um, yeah, that, those are great questions, and I think uh, ones that uh, Latter-day Saints themselves are still uh, seeking to work out. Um, uh, and before I comment on them further, um, just in terms of uh, chronology, um, I, I, I think I, I like pointing out the fact that uh, Mormonism is a religious tradition or the LDS Church as, a, as an institution. Um, uh, one, 
its uh, current leader is uh, half the age of the church itself, um, uh, down to basically the year. And uh, two, in terms of uh, chronology, the the LDS church, if put on some type of like line uh, compared to the early Christian church, they, they haven't reached their Council of Nicaea yet. Um, and so where some of these areas um, that uh, um, uh, I often encounter various Christians uh, who might say that uh, this is this is a question that like Latter-day Saints should be able to answer confidently and unanimously and, um, you know, with with a level of, of, of confidence. Um, there's, uh, there's certainly, um, I don't know if you want to call them, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, just undeveloped areas or, or holes or, or blind spots even. Um, but, uh, this is one area, um, about, uh, the nature of God and the eternities. And, and I would say, uh, likely, um, uh, with Jesus as well, um, that, uh, there isn't a level of, uh, formal doctrine, uh, from the LDS church as, as might be given to, um, uh, various other issues, um, or subjects. So it, it, you know, I'll be speaking personally here in terms of, uh, my, my own beliefs. Um, but, uh, I, I, um, let's see. So with respect to Dr. Combs's, uh, kind of positioning of Jesus, um, I would agree with him, uh, that, uh, the, the gulf between, uh, humans and, uh, God within LDS theology is more, uh, a question of, of progression, um, or, uh, you know, uh, moral perfection or, uh, mortality as well, uh, mortal corruption, let's say, and not necessarily one of, of, uh, strict ant- ontology in the same way that we might see, see within traditional Christianity. So, um, yeah, um, I certainly believe that there are huge differences between humans and, and God, um, uh, both in terms of, of, of knowledge and, and power and authority and, you know, all kinds of different areas. Um, but uh, yes, uh, those differences exist uh, more along the lines of a, of a spectrum, a trajectory uh, than a, a strict uh, binary or a dichotomy, a creature creator uh, a binary that we might see in uh, traditional Christianity. Um so yeah, I, I I basically agree with Dr. Combs. I I, I liked uh, one of his earlier comments that he said, um, you know, that that God is more exalted than we are. Um, uh, he used a couple other statements, um, but uh, yeah, I I think the key difference there is one of of progression, um, and not necessarily one strictly of of nature or ontology. Although both of those things are impacted in some ways by the differences in our um, our our own. I don't know, let's say ontological progression compared to God within LDS thought. Um, so the next question, has God the Father eternally been God or did he progress to be God? Um, at least for me, the reading that I find uh, the, or understanding that I find most consistent with uh, uh, Joseph Smith's uh, kind of King Follett theology and uh, the majority of uh, LDS thought that's proceeded since then uh, has been uh, a God that uh, um, progresses to be God. Um, so, you know, this question, has God the Father eternally been God, or did he progress to be God? Um, you know, I certainly affirm that God the Father eternally um, has been, you know, himself has has possessed his, uh, his, his same, uh, you know, individual, um, uh, let, let's say, nature um, or, or, or personality. Um, but uh, uh, 
I, I'd also lean towards affirming that um, in terms of uh, eternally being God, eternally existing in the same state of, of glorification and exaltation and perfection, uh, I, I, I think that Joseph Smith's uh, theology towards the end of his life leans itself towards a God uh, that uh, had to progress or advance to that state. Um, and then for the next question, has God the Son always been God or did he progress to be God? Um, uh, I, I'd also affirm uh, that uh, Jesus uh, progressed uh, to be God um, or, you know, to occupy the state of exaltation that uh, he, he currently um, is understood as, as occupying in LDS thought. Um, although I, I should point out, uh, I recently had a, a Facebook friend um, who is Catholic. Uh, she posed the question in an LDS discussion group I was a part of. Um, she also does Mormon studies, but uh, she posed the question, um, at what point did Jesus become divine or at what point did Jesus become God? Uh, and she asked that to Latter-day Saints. And I I mean, I was even a little bit uh, surprised by the diversity of, of answers uh, that uh, were generated as a result of this question. Um uh, which I think underscores, uh, uh, again, um, the, the lack of um, kind of a, a formal unity or, or theological orthodoxy uh, created around some of these questions. Um, but with that one in particular, uh, I saw people answering that uh, Jesus has always been God, uh, because uh, in Latter-day Saint thought, um, and, and broadly speaking within Christian thought as well, right, uh, Jesus is identified with with Yahweh or Jehovah of of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible, um, and so various Latter Day Saints said that well Yahweh is God, therefore Jesus has always been God. Others uh, saying that uh, Jesus um, didn't um, you know uh, take on this this divine nature um, that we would recognize today until perhaps the time of his baptism, uh, where they. You know, they seem to describe a kind of, uh, let's say, adoptionist theology um, or or others uh, saying that it wasn't until Jesus's ascension uh, to heaven following his resurrection uh, that he became fully exalted. Um, that's actually the position that I feel is best supported by LDS scripture, um, one in which uh, Jesus uh, uh, achieves his his full exaltation uh, following uh, his his ascension and resurrection. Um, but, uh, you know, I. I'll, I'll completely admit uh, that uh, I, in a lot of these areas, uh, some of the questions that that you've uh, posed to me today, or or you know, we'll we'll ask later. Um, I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around myself, you know, and, and work them out in terms of how to how to best reconcile scripture and and see you know which which answers are are best supported uh, within my own tradition. So um, yeah, Christology is something that I've probably been wrestling with uh, since my mission. That, that's when I first started. Uh, trying to crack that nut in a in a serious or or critical way, um, and uh, it's 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 been an interesting um, experience since. Uh, but uh, yeah, at least to those questions, those are some of my thoughts. Yeah, thank you, Jackson. Appreciate that. I, I would I would title the uh, the view that you espouse in terms of Jesus's exaltation. I would, I would espouse that as uh, the the Matrix Christology. Mm, elaborate on that. Just because Neo, you know, it wasn't until he died and kind of like. Oh. You know, you know, resurrected him and all that, that he kind of actually achieved his uh, full power, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> I, I like those, that trilogy, like I, I, watching it as a Mormon, you know, as a Latter-day Saint versus now you pick up on a lot of things, you know, a lot of yeah. ideas that are sprinkled in there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, we can talk a lot about even what it just means to be God. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, so we're not going to get into everything in super in depth, but uh, hopefully we can, we can talk a little bit more, you know, about uh, these clips. So 
uh, let's let's move on towards like the LDS view of the human nature. Uh, so, which definition of intelligence or intelligences do you hold to? Um, uh, intelligent beings called intelligences existed before and after they were given spirit bodies in a pre-mortal existence, or intelligent beings were organized as spirits out of eternal intelligent matter that they did not exist as individuals before they were organized as spirit beings in the pre-mortal existence. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, first, I think it's just important to say that uh, in um, uh, some of uh, Smith's uh, early writings or, or just throughout the course of his life, um, he, he certainly wasn't a systematic theologian. Um, and so sometimes uh, he would use uh, certain terms interchangeably. And uh, intelligences and spirits uh, were among some of those terms that sometimes can get a little bit confusing uh, for contemporary readers and trying to parse out, you know, which ones uh, he might be like, you know, what what was what what kind of a theological definition he was holding for both. Um, but uh, at least uh, out of the 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 paradigms that that you shared as examples, um, I, I definitely lean towards uh, one in which uh, um, intelligences are. Uh, let's say the the most uh, base or or primitive form of like sentient being, um, and that there is a level of uh, individuality uh, or even agency uh, that's uh, possible uh, among those uh, intelligences. Um, and then from that, I would hold um, there's there's uh, kind of two main schools of thought within uh, LDS theology, historically speaking about uh, uh, the nature of spirits, um, you know, one in which uh, uh, spirits are created in a kind of, uh, let's say, process that uh, mirrors a, a biological or mortal reproduction, um, you know, where it, it very much is, uh, um, it requires a, let's let's say, like a male and a female deity to produce uh, spirit children in a way that's quite comparable to uh, how children are produced in mortality. Or there's a there's a paradigm of more adoption than than spirit birth as it's called, um, but spiritual adoption where um, these intelligences enter into a kind of covenant relationship uh, with with deity and therefore are able to undergo a change uh, in in nature to become adopted as as spirit children. Um, and, and so that's the one that I would view uh, that that I would uh, personally espouse myself. Um, I, I find uh, more more uh, literal uh, depictions of spirit birth to not just uh, verge into a territory that uh, most Christians or, or often uh, modern, um, I don't know, uh, readers or, or uh, yeah, uh, seekers might be a, a, not just perplexed, but per potentially scandalized by. Um, but I think it was also very much entrenched within a, a view of deity that was impacted by plural marriage. Uh, where uh, plural marriage, the raising of seeds um, uh, of, of righteous uh, posterity, um, those were understood in very literal terms. Uh, the, the Pratt brothers, for instance, uh, in LDS uh, thought, um, got uh, quite inventive uh, even with uh, some of these paradigms of, of spirit birth, where they might be opining on, on uh, the uh, the particular amount of time it takes to gestate a, a spirit child, right, in, in a spirit womb or, or whatnot. And, and so um, for Latter-day Saints that might um, be, I don't know, a bit scandalized themselves if approached by evangelicals and asked, uh, for instance, like, you know, uh, if you believe that God has, you know, plural wives, uh, you know, the, and they engage in, I, I don't know, the 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 sensationalized term that that I've heard in some evangelical circles is like celestial sex, 
Um, uh, you know, that, that's not one I've ever heard in LDS circles um, myself, but uh, um, you know, that, that kind of reproduction, um, I don't know, I, 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 I lean towards a, a spiritual adoption myself. So anyways, yeah, uh, to answer your question about like intelligences and, um, oh, and I should also say too, um, that, that view of intelligences is, is eternally uncreated by God um, uh, and having agency that precedes God, um, at least for me, solves uh, various uh, theological issues such as, um, or it helps to, to solve them, such as the, the, the so-called problem of evil or suffering. Okay, thanks for that, Jackson. So would you say that you hold a view similar to or or the same as um Blake Osler's like eternal personalism view? Um I'd have I'd have to revisit uh Blake's uh specific uh view to you know kind of affirm or deny that but but Blake has definitely uh impacted my my views in this area. I will I will say though that with respect to the earlier question about uh, has God the Father eternally progressed to be or uh, eternally been God or progressed to be God this is an area where Blake Osler himself, um, you know, kind of stands in a in a unique space relative to uh, uh, most historical LDS uh, theologians or or thinkers on the subject. Uh, where I, I'm pretty sure that Blake does uh, affirm that God the Father uh, is, um, uh, you know, an eternally uncreated God um, in a in a more unique sense that uh, might uh, philosophically resemble uh, classical theism more closely than uh, other Christian the- or Mormon uh, uh, theologies might. Hmm. Okay. All right. So um, in the next clip, Dr. Combs is asked to kind of explain where he sees LDS theology fitting within the framework that they've been discussing on the podcast. So let's listen to that clip. You mentioned this kind of proto-Orthodox position. Help us situate where Latter-day Saint theology fits into this? Yes. So uh, we absolutely, regarding Jesus Christ, I think accept this this proto-Orthodox position that Christ is both fully human and fully divine. I think there are ways in which we would differ from early Christians. Uh, I mentioned before that we see the primary distinction between us and God being one, our sinful nature, and two, even before our sinful nature, we would describe God as being more exalted and glorious and and perfect, right? Um, some Christians come to describe the gulf between us and God as even wider. They describe us humans as creation, as creatures, and God as God the Father, as uncreated, as as not a as as the one who has always existed, as eternal and therefore uncreated, and therefore they see a, a even wider gap there. And and for them, for Christians who emphasize the gap in that way, as not seeing us being like God from birth, but seeing us as as utterly different in our very natures from God. For them, that emphasizes even more strongly the importance of Jesus Christ coming down and taking on flesh, because Jesus Christ in his incarnation, incarnation literally means him being in flesh, taking on flesh, uh, that bridges the gulf. It, it's, it's a way of thinking about the beginning of the atonement, the beginning of making us at one with God by Jesus Christ overcoming that gap and becoming one with us. Irenaeus, who I also talk about here, Irenaeus is one of the first Christians that describes 
the necessity of Christ coming down and taking on flesh in this way. He says that that Christ became man so that men might become God. All right. So Jackson, what do you think of Dr. Combs' statement that Latter-day Saints accept the proposition that Christ is both fully human and fully divine at birth? Uh, do you think he's equivocating at all? Um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, one thing I will say is uh, I, I think this is an area that probably could have used a bit more elaboration. Um, I would have, per, uh, you know, appreciated perhaps a, a more careful uh, definition of some of the terms that he's using, um, because uh, especially in comparing them to, uh, you know, how those same terms might be uh, understood and used within uh, various Christian circles presently or historically, um, it's, it's you know, we, we run into the classic issue uh, within kind of these interreligious conversations amongst uh, Latter-day Saints and other Christians of uh, using very similar vocabulary, but often uh, perhaps meaning different things uh, in using those same words. So at least for my purposes here, when he says uh, that uh, uh, Latter-day Saints accept that Christ is both fully human and fully divine, um, uh, you know, I, I would have appreciated perhaps an elaboration of, of what he means by divine uh, and how that relates to perhaps uh, the, the LDS view of, of exaltation. Um, the other thing as well um, is with respect to being uh, fully human. And, and this, is, this too is uh, an area where, um, I don't know, I, I'm sure there's been uh, uh, perhaps similar points of confusion or concern amongst uh, Christians, um, especially as these matters have been worked out. But, um, you know, in even though like in terms of a, a personal affirmation, I would certainly say that that Christ was uh, fully human. Um, when uh, I try and reconcile that uh, with the the belief that the three of us here would share as well that Christ was uh, also without sin, um, uh, that, that that's an area where I cannot relate to him on. Right? Um, that that my you know to me what uh, what more mortality or my human experience uh, has been characterized by in part is my sinful nature and by uh, you know, committing uh, uh, sinful actions. Um, and that's that's something that Christ himself did not participate in, right? Um, so I, I, I guess sometimes I even struggle a little bit um, in using terms like fully human and fully divine, uh, because it's hard for me to fully uh, relate to his humanity and how he experienced it. Um, there's plenty of areas where I, I can relate to that. Um, but then his uh, his divinity as well, especially within uh, LDS theology, I, I think I would have appreciated a bit more uh, elaboration from Dr. Combs in that area, uh, because I, I think it can potentially lend itself to a, a misunderstanding that, um, um, I don't know, that, that Latter-day Saints view him as fully divine in the same terms that uh, Christians themselves uh, might uh, consider Christ fully divine when they use uh, th those same phrases, right? Or if they speak perhaps of like the, the hypostatic union specifically. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I totally agree with you on, on what you said. I, it's an area of the podcast and, and his article too, that I was left wanting um, mm -hmm. a further explication of, of how he views uh, the idea that, that Christ was fully divine at birth, because I do sense that, that perhaps it's different than um, the way that a, an Orthodox Christian would, would view that statement. Yeah. Um, and I, and I do wish he would have, uh, expounded on that a bit more. So, uh, that's what we're going to do here. We're going to yeah. move a little bit into a lightning round of, of about four questions for you, Jackson. <laughs> and, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to kind of tease out some of these differences. So, 
as you understand LDS theology and and specifically LDS ontology, are are we humans of the same nature as God the Son? Um, yeah, it, it certainly depends on and how how you view that, right? Um, if we're just speaking about uh, ontological kinds, uh, then it would be a point of LDS theology, in in my understanding of it, that. Uh, humans and, and uh, deity are of the same ontological kind. We expe- we exist on the same ontological spectrum. Um, but uh, uh, certainly, as I said earlier, that uh, uh, humanity and uh, deity or divinity, um, there's going to be differences, not just in, in progression, but uh, in how those um, uh, in how that progression is manifested in their in their natures as well. Um, and so uh, I, I would be inclined to see the the nature of Christ as not just being more um, uh, holy or or sanctified uh, compared to us, but uh, more uh, refined spiritually. That uh, that he possessed qualities uh, that indeed set him apart from the rest of humanity, um, such as a, a sinless um, uh, a state of being. Um, you have me thinking on the spot now, actually, if, if I would uh, refer to his nature itself as sinless, or if he just uh, chose not to sin, right? Um, uh, we may have mentioned this earlier. Um, uh, and, and that's another area that I've been doing some, some thinking in terms of Christology. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, generally, if, if I was to uh, uh, make the statement that uh, uh, humans are of the same nature as God the Son, um, that, that's one that I wouldn't be uncomfortable saying perhaps in, in church circles. Um, I would just, um, I don't know, I, w- I would be compelled to elaborate on that and uh, kind of break that down a bit uh, to specify exactly how I'm uh, meaning uh, w- when I use that phrase. All right. Yeah. Thanks for that. You know, as I, as I think about um, the, the podcast and Dr. Combs' article, um, I've mentioned a few things I appreciate it, but, but again, I, I wish he would have been a bit more clear. Um, one of the things that, that came to mind was Doctrine and Covenants section 93. Um, and this is, this is a section in particular that I, I recall a Facebook discussion I was having with, with the Latter-day Saint um, years ago, in which I was kind of making the, the case that uh, on, on LDS teaching, um, Jesus was not always divine. Mm-hmm. And um, we're not full, not always fully divine. And the LDS uh, gentleman that I was discussing with, you know, pointed out DNC 93 uh, verse, let me find it. Um, I guess verses one and two, which say, verily, verily, thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. And I am the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And I am in the father and the father in me and the father and I are one. The father, because he gave me of his fullness and the son, because I was in the world and made flesh my tabernacle and dwelt among the sons of men. And the the LDS gentleman that I was discussing with was was focused particularly on verse four uh, and kind of was making the case that um, because the father gave the son of his fullness. And he was making the argument that 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 happened eternally, that therefore, you know, Jesus was always fully divine. But um, if you keep on reading uh, DNC 93, it's an interesting section of the doctrine and covenants because Joseph Smith kind of switches over into um, uh, where he claims to be giving the full record of, of, of John the revelator, right. Or, or the beloved disciple uh, and, and kind of reworks some of the passages in John chapter one. Um, and in particular, uh, let's see, where is that? Um, yeah. 
So uh, verses 12 and 13, and I, John, saw that he received not of the fullness at first, but received grace for grace. And he received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received the fullness. Um, and so that kind of goes along with the, the 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 more traditionally Mormon view of eternal progression yeah. um, that, that, that Christ kind of worked out his own uh, salvation and exaltation when he was here in mortality, as, as Bruce R. McConkie, uh, you know, put it. Um, but if you look at, you know, the way the verses in John, John's gospel read that were reworked, um, it says, you know, uh, and I, John, bear record that he received a fullness of the glory of the Father, um, you know, and and in that from, from, from Christ's fullness, um, you know, we have received grace for grace, right? So uh, it kind of comes back to this idea that... Um, the stakes are high, right? If, mm-hmm. if, if Christ isn't fully divine, then as, as Dr. Combs put it, how, how would he have the power to save us? Right. So um, what, what's your thought on that? Um, I know you touched on it a little bit before. Uh, I think you kind of affirmed the idea that, that, that Jesus progressed to be God. Um, what, how would you understand the, the claim that, that Latter-day Saints could affirm that, that Jesus was fully divine at birth? Yeah, this is one of those things that I've been uh, specifically wrestling with uh, since my mission, I would say. And um, I, I think there's other uh, related questions that can be asked that kind of play into this, right? That uh, if Latter-day Saints are asking themselves uh, what what qualities or attributes or, or you know, th- things like that uh, characterize uh, the, the state of being divine, of, of deity, right? Um, uh yeah, there's there's kind of a range there. So, like for instance, um, I think I think uh, many Latter Day Saints uh, would affirm that uh, having a a physical body, right, is is necessary uh, to you know uh, to obtain godhood, uh, to be exalted or be considered uh, divine, right? Um, but uh, that certainly, um, you know, it, uh, by um, admission of uh, you know Latter Day Saints' own theology. Uh, if you have uh, the Holy Spirit uh, considered a, a separate uh, being and, and personage uh, within the Godhead, um, Latter-day Saints are, are you know pretty explicit in affirming that the Holy Spirit does not have a, a body, right? It, it's, a, it's a personage of, of spirit. Um, and uh, yet, uh, you know, is, is, this, uh, is this a state of Godhood uh, or divinity that uh, doesn't require, uh, uh, some type of physical body or a glorified body akin to what Latter-day Saints would believe uh, the, the son and the, the father have, um, or uh, perhaps did the, the Holy Spirit possess that at some point and, you know, is kind of in some type of a state of, of not having it temporarily uh, for our purposes. Um, you know, I, I think that's an area um, that could be uh, asked as well. Um, yeah. So, uh, one way that I've thought about this um, potentially is, you know, if we set up uh, within LDS thought, this kind of like spectrum, right, of like progression from intelligences to uh, spirit, uh, spirit children to, you know, humanity, uh, mortality, uh, to um, uh, resurrected beings, uh, you know, or, or, or temporarily spirits, uh, and then eventually to uh, godhood um, that, uh, you know, Perhaps there's a way that we could break down these kinds of uh, uh, sections along the uh, this this uh, this line of progression, where um, you know beings that exist within this kind of state of progression uh, can be considered 
uh, human, uh, whether they're more sinful or more holy or uh, more, more or less sanctified, um, or, you know, uh, a being can be considered, uh, you know, still divine, but not yet fully exalted in the way that the father is. Um, this is an area that I'm still trying to uh, parse things out more clearly. Um, but at least to me, it, do, it does seem to be the case that uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, I don't know, at least implicitly affirm that uh, our our definitions of deity and uh, what what can, what kind of being can qualify as divine um, are perhaps a bit more broad than we often uh, uh, you know admit to ourselves or, or recognize. Um, that 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 particular point about the Holy Spirit, for instance, is one that I've I've posed to various Latter Day Saints and you know maybe gotten um, confused looks right. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that that's an area. Uh, certainly, fundamentalist Mormons. Um, have uh, dealt with uh, some of these issues in more um, direct ways where uh, they could at least give clear theological answers, um, uh, you know, from a, from a more confident doctrinal position. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, at least for now, I'm still um, trying to, trying to think of that. Um, I also just want to point out, um, I, I really appreciate uh, uh, Paul that you noted that in DNC 93, that there's this kind of textual reworking of the gospel of John. And I just think it's important to point out, right, that uh, at least within this paradigm in, in DNC 93, uh, of course, you have this commentary about Jesus progressing from grace to grace and, you know, uh, uh, eventually obtaining a fullness, uh, you know, meaning at, at one point he did not have that fullness. Um, and if you compare that to John's gospel, and his theology of uh, Jesus as, as the, the pre-incarnate uh, Logos, um, uh, there's certainly this strong assumption there um, uh, within the Gospel of John uh, that, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, Jesus eternally existed as this uh, creative uh, you know, force or, or entity identified as, as the Logos uh, and also identified as, as God, right? Um, so th those differences uh, should certainly be noted uh, when comparing those two texts. Yep. Thank you for that. So <clears throat> to kind of play off of what, what you were kind of saying there about um, different gradations of divinity yeah. um, uh, and maybe an analogy too. So, but first, first kind of to touch on some of the LDS theology there, right? LDS theology conceives of a, a, a multi-tiered heaven, mm -hmm. um, a celestial kingdom, which within which uh, is, a, is also three are also, are also three levels and the highest okay. level of which are is reserved for those uh humans who are exalted right and then you have the terrestrial kingdom and the celestial kingdom and and lds scripture dnc 76 talks about um you know the the inheritors of each of those three kingdoms uh having uh differences uh difference in gradation in terms of the glorification of their bodies mm -hmm. um <clears throat> and also kind of keys in on the idea that um, a terrestrial body cannot withstand the glory of a of the celestial kingdom and a celestial body cannot withstand the glory of the terrestrial kingdom and so on and so forth. Um, and so to the analogy, like I, I like to think of like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was at Myrtle Beach, you know, swimming in the, in the ocean. Uh, in some sense, I could share a space with uh, ocean uh, ocean dwelling creatures. Right. Um, <laughs> but there is a, a portion of the ocean, the, the deep ocean trenches where I cannot go. Mm. Uh, my body will not survive there. Right. Um, and 
likewise, the, the creatures that can exist in the deep ocean trenches uh, can't come up to the surface where I was splashing around and, sh and sharing uh, space with, with small fish and, and perhaps some sharks and dolphins. Um, they would die up on the surface. And, and, but the, the, the fish that live closer to the shore and closer to the surface, likewise, if they were to get out of the water like I can, they could not live, right? So like, okay. it's kind of like a similar concept to the way Latter-day Saints view heaven. Um, but I wouldn't say that that like an angler fish that lives in the deep trenches is the same nature as I am, right? So it's on one sense, Latter-day Saints theology kind of says, well, we're all of the same nature. We're all of the same species. But then it when you get when you talk about heaven, it talks about di these different gradations and okay. even that 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 a body terrestrial could not withstand the glory of the celestial kingdom. So so how how is there not a difference in nature there is, I guess, is the question I'm kind of left with when I think about LDS theology. Yeah, I, I really I really like that metaphor, though. Um, you, you got me thinking of, uh, of uh, I don't know, people from the celestial kingdom, you know, wearing diving suits and and going to temporarily visit uh, the lower kingdoms. Right. Uh, you know, in which case maybe the the. Uh, what outer darkness would be like the the Marianas Trench or or whatever that big trench is called. <laughs> so uh, so kind of continuing our discussion on, on Christology on the Logos, um, you kind of explained earlier that your view is or understanding is that we're all that humans are kind of on the same spectrum of ontology. And for those, maybe we should have defined it at the beginning. I don't know if we did. Uh, there's probably a lot of listeners that are confused, but ontology just is the study of being or, mm -hmm. you know, what something is. Uh, so if we have the same, uh, if we're on the same spectrum of being or ontology as God, um, does that imply, or is it possible, at least hypothetically, that you or I, or any other human being, being of the same nature as God could have theoretically carried out the atonement? Or is that something that's completely unique to Jesus that only he could have done and why? Yeah, um, well, um, I, I think it's worth pointing out, of course, that uh, Latter-day Saints uh, do perceive uh, Jesus, at least uh, within their kind of uh, common cosmology, of occupying a different space uh, um, than than they do. Um, uh, Jesus is is considered the the firstborn, uh, the the first of of God's uh, uh, spirit children. Um, who in the pre-existence uh, had the the capacity, the willingness, the um, uh, the the authority uh, to be identified as the the savior, and so already um, he, you know, I think it's safe to say he, uh, Jesus does exist in a in a different category. Um, uh, you know, this is one in which uh, uh, Lucifer also. You know, perhaps there's a, in different LDS narratives, right? Uh, Lucifer uh, competed with him uh, for that kind of uh, uh, position or or that that responsibility or authority, um, but was uh, unsuccessful and and rebelled against God as a result. Um, so there's that. Um, you know, of course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Latter Day Saints affirm that uh, Jesus was uh, without sin. Uh, you know, implying that uh, Jesus perfectly obeyed uh, the commandments of God. Uh, something which uh, um, you know no no other humans uh, are believed to be able to do within LDS theology. Um, yeah, so I I think this combination of of uh, a, a kind of uh, uh, prior authority um, granted in the preexistence, um, and especially uh, from Latter Day Saint scripture that uh, identifies Jesus as uh, as uh, Jehovah or Yahweh of of the Old Testament. 
um, there's a level of, of divine power there too that uh, would certainly set uh, Jesus uh, Jesus apart from uh, the rest of humanity. Um, so I do think that there are things that, that make Jesus unique in LDS theology um, that uh, make it so not just uh, any one of us uh, could have theoretically carried out the atonement. Um, oh, uh, you know, and this is an area too where I think the the Book of Mormon has some some pretty poignant um, atonement theology at play. Uh, speaking of, uh, you know, the need for for uh, an infinite atonement, uh, something that could only be, um, at least within the text of the Book of Mormon, uh, brought about by a, a perfect sac- sacrifice, um, you know, um, uh, which is found in, in the case of Jesus Christ. So um, uh, I, I should note uh, that uh, historically some Latter-day Saints, though, have uh, viewed Jesus's uh, kind of unique life. Uh, almost exclusively through the lens of his obedience, um, his uh, his moral perfection, and uh, yeah, his his uh, uh, lived ability to obey God's law to such an extent that some LDS leaders or or Latter Day Saints themselves have uh, affirmed that uh, that a similar kind of moral perfection is indeed possible for Latter Day Saints themselves, or you know, for uh, disciples of Jesus. Um, um, I I'm I'm not sure in any way. <laughs> Uh, theologically or scripturally, uh, how how this is indeed the case. Um, but uh, some Latter Day Saints have have kind of uh, uh, gone into that uh, kind of area um, in, in a way which I think is uh, is problematic and theologically ungrounded. Um, but uh, yeah, um, those are some of the unique qualities, at least that I that I would see to Jesus in Jesus. Okay. Uh, to clarify, though, you would say that those are qualities of, of authority rather than of ontology, correct? Uh, um, I mean, yeah, going, going back, uh, to some of my earlier statements, um, like I, I don't think that, uh, Jesus, when he was born, uh, when he experienced mortality was at the same point of progression as, uh, as we are. Um, I, I don't think that that was the case. Um, I think that Jesus is already, uh, more, uh, had, was already further along in his uh, personal progression than we were. So I think that that's a, that's a key difference there, but um, at least within the scope of, of LDS theology, um, Jesus would still be perceived as, uh, as being of the same ontological kind as, as humanity or as God. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to say real, real quick that uh, I, I posted on my wall on Facebook. I posted a, a verse, the verse, I think it's in second Peter. I forget which epistle Peter it is where it talks about believers become partakers of the divine nature. Mm-hmm. And I, I see personally that we cannot partake of a, a nature that we already have. Mm. And so I, you know, I, I, so that's why I said that, you know, I, I think it's clear that scripture, that the Bible teaches that the divine nature and the human nature are not the same because otherwise we would be basically just be partaking of the same nature, but at a, a higher level or maybe like mm. a, you know, like a more powerful level. Yeah. Um, and, uh, when I had discussions with, with Latter-day Saints about this, they agreed that we are of the same, you know, they believe that we are the same nature as God. And so then we got into discussions about, well, why, why is Christ the only one that's capable of doing the atonement? And they gave similar answers that you did. So um, I, this idea that God, you know, that he's either the firstborn and that's why he's unique or that God is specifically called and empowered, you know, Christ to do his work as savior. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there's this emphasis of calling. And I think maybe that's a cultural thing, you know, because LDS church is like, you know, authority and calling and priesthood yeah. and maybe that's why it resonated with them yeah but uh yeah it yeah. was interesting that they gave similar answers that you did all right final question jackson um we're gonna go to dnc 132 you've touched on a little bit uh 
you know, some ideas around uh, plural marriage and how that touches upon some of these theological questions within Latter-day Saint thought and 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 also um, in the ways that fundamentalist Mormons would would perhaps give uh, you know deeply theological answers that are consistent with with you know, kind of maybe in a more systematic way with, with mm-hmm. Latter-day Saint scripture than, than some modern uh, Latter-day Saints do. Um, but DNC 132 verse 20, um, kind of, it's kind of the crowning point of explaining how uh, on, on a Latter-day Saint view, uh, humans attain to Godhood, right? That um, it, it's tied with eternal marriage um, and that uh, eternal marriage being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And then, uh, in, uh, you know, talks about that, that then they will receive their exaltation and glory in all things, uh, as has been sealed upon their heads, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever. Um, so then it goes on in verse 20 to say, then, then shall they be gods because they have no end. Therefore they shall be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. Then shall they be above all because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods because they have all power and the angels are subject unto them. So, um, you know, all those things ex- just kind of described in verse 20 are things that are ascribed to Christ uh, in the Bible um, mm-hmm. already. Um, and so, you know, how, do you view uh, verse 20 of DNC 132? It's, d- does it pose a problem for for kind of viewing humans as of the same nature as God the Son? If, if you know, those are things that, that, that Christ had already attained to yeah. um, prior to his incarnation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's certainly problematic if you see those two, uh, uh, the, the two, um, the, 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 the category or the space that, that humans occupy and then are perceived as, uh, progressing into, uh, which is the state that, you know, Christ himself, uh, occupies, um, those two places, if you perceive them as two, um, uh, two distinct natures themselves or two different points along like, uh, you know, like I said, like an ontological spectrum. Um, but, uh, um, at least in this case, um, I, I think this also underscores that, uh, um, we are not where Christ is. Um, Christ is not where we are. Um, and yet, uh, um, there's this belief within, uh, LDS theology that, uh, uh, humans can certainly progress to that point. Um, but uh, it, it certainly can complicate uh, some of these earlier uh, questions or points that we touched on, um, especially if a Latter-day Saint was just to, um, you know, without uh, much clarification, uh, say that uh, uh, humans uh, or, or us um, have uh, the, same, the same nature as Jesus Christ or the same nature that Jesus Christ experienced. Um, I, I would just want to uh, carefully qualify what we mean by that. All right, Jackson, I, I think we've teased out some key differences uh, between <laughs> Latter-day Saint theology and, and Orthodox Christian theology. Yeah, we appreciate too. you. Uh, we appreciate you coming on and being willing to discuss the podcast uh, episode that you you flipped to us. And we'll definitely check out that other uh, source that you sent to us just before we started recording tonight. Um, so, Jackson, thank you for coming on. Any final words? you want to share before you yeah um yeah just uh i'm I'm grateful as well and as far as that other source goes um i'll just do a quick plug for it um the maxwell institute at byu um has recently announced that they are uh, going to be starting uh, a new initiative called uh seek this jesus the maxwell institute christology initiative um which is going to start in uh 2026 so it's a a couple years out uh for sure 
Um, but I think it's important uh, to mention this uh, given our conversation today, um, because um, uh, at least to my knowledge, this is going to be the first very intensive uh, study at this kind of level uh, within LDS circles on the specific question of Christology from the perspectives of uh, different LDS scholars in a way that's uh, published and presented uh, to larger uh, LDS populations. So um, I think that speaks to some of the some of the theological maturing, let's say, or or the developments that I uh, spoke to earlier uh, when it comes to the the LDS tradition. And, um, you know, Christology is an area that I think we can expect to see increased attention uh, towards uh, from within LDS circles in ways that uh, are probably going to be pretty different uh, than than some of the ways that it's been approached uh, historically. All right. Thanks for that, Jackson. I, I appreciate especially tonight your, your comments on uh, the kind of the shifting views of apostasy. Uh, at mm-hmm. least within scholarly circles within uh, the Latter-day Saint tradition. And I I personally welcome, you know, any further forays into uh, engagement with historic Christianity and, and historic theology uh, uh, within, within the Christian tradition uh, by Latter-day Saint scholars, because I think uh, it, it's a good thing. I, I do... Uh, I do wonder uh, how exactly how far that can go in terms yeah. of, of of reaching a, a unity of the faith, so to speak, because of some of the issues we pointed out with with Latter Day Saint scripture tonight. But I appreciate you coming on and and having this conversation. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, th- thank you, Paul, and uh, thank you, Matthew, as well. Yeah, thank you, Jackson. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. Good All luck right, to your studies. You. Yep. Thank you. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you please visit the Outer Brightness podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to Outer Brightness wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're benefiting from our content, please write a review to help us spread the word. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. Music for Outer Brightness is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and Adams Road. You can learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. worthy of the blood that Jesus shed. But now I know that all the works I did were meaningless compared with Jesus' lonely death on the cross where he bore sin. And now I have the righteousness that is my faith in Jesus'
took away the written code The love words that stood opposed And nailed it there for me And through the cross He put to death hostility And in His body reconciled Us to God and brought us peace And I am crucified with Christ And I no longer of the cross Some demand a sign and some seek to be wise But we preach Christ crucified A stumbling block for some The foolishness of God But wiser than the wisest man The power of the cross May I never boast except of our Lord through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world so I take up my cross and follow where Jesus